This is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy you're here. I'm Sandy Scarlatta. I was born in Virginia Beach and raised in the Baltimore, Annapolis area and had very humble and tragic beginnings. And as a result, my life was a hot mess. Thankfully, 33 years ago, I got my act together. And since that time, I have dedicated my life to serving others and raising awareness that no matter what you've been through, you can choose happiness and live the life of your dreams. Happiness Solved is dedicated to giving you content that is empowering, motivational, inspirational, and of course, a dose of happiness. It's my way to give back to the world and share other people's stories. This thing called life can be challenging, and my guests share their amazing stories, wisdom, and life lessons that demonstrate anyone can choose happiness. You see, happiness is a choice, and the choice is yours. Today's episode is amazing, and I am so grateful for you. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to leave a review and follow me on social media at Coach Sandy Scarlatta. Enjoy the show. Mark Lesser, it's such a privilege to be talking with you today. And I'm so excited for this conversation because everything you do just seems so up my alley. So thank you so much for being here. Well, great. Well, tell me a little bit about your alley. <laughs> well, you're a Zen teacher, first of all, like, and you help develop a mindfulness program inside of Google's headquarters. That's so cool. Yeah, I feel amazingly uh, privileged and lucky, you know, and, uh, you know, my, my, my parents were not thrilled, you know, when I, when I dropped out of college and, and spent uh, 10 years living at the San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, but, um, but they were much happier when I went back and got an MBA degree and you know, ended up starting some companies. And yeah, then uh, it was really like, that was a life changing. I still remember that phone call of, hey, um, you interested in helping to develop a mindfulness program for leaders inside of Google? Like, yeah, that sounds like fun. And, and it was, it was, um, it was life changing. So before we go into your backstory, because I want to hear more about that. And since, since, we're talking about Google. Do you think that that really helped shape some of the culture that they have here? Because, I mean, it's known as as a really great place to work. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in some way, there were many, many people who went through that program, and it certainly changed a lot of lives. Um, you know, it had an influence on the culture there, but it's you know enormous company. You know, spread yeah. around the world. Um, so, but, but, that, but I think, I think the fact that, um, that Google was supporting a mindfulness and emotional intelligence program, I mean, it, everyone knew that that was happening and, and that, so yeah, it definitely had a positive influence, I think. That's really awesome. And it's great to hear that such a, a huge part of a, most likely the world, I think Google is, is, is. In you know, I mean, for years I was like, oh, I just asked my best friend Google and, and I'll find well, the answers, right? Well, you know, one of the things that it did for sure was it gave mindful leadership a kind of uh, heightened credibility and mindful leadership programs ended up 
being part of many, many companies all around the world. So even though, you know, I, I couldn't say for sure, you know, answer that question, like, did it, did it change the Google culture? It changed the world culture around, um, it kind of shifted the way people look at leadership. Um, and I think that's still kind of on, ongoing, right? That the old, the old school, you know, top-down leadership, the, you know, the, the sense that, um, that business is essentially, right, rooting, rooting out the emotions and humanness, all of that was kind of the un underbelly of corporations in our country for the last, you know, hundred or more years. And, and we almost don't even see it, but in some way, I think it's been an enormous shift that still, we're still in it about, yeah. you know, how to, how to, how do you organize people? How do you get stuff done, you know, productive ways? And, but how do you do it at the same time, bring in and uh, build humanity and collaboration and trust and all those things and, and the mindfulness piece uh, that there's a good deal of evidence, you know, research as well as experience as to the positive influence that, um, you know, this mindfulness and meditation practice have had on the corporate corporate world. Yeah, well, I know that there's, you know, they do say that um, most billionaires attribute much of their success to mindfulness and meditation and things like that. And like you said, we're still, I don't think we're there yet, but I think in corporate America, especially, we're still working toward getting that emotional intelligence to be really sunk in mm -hmm. leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, again, I think there has been a major, a major shift in, yeah. and again, still, still ongoing. Still ongoing. And that's a bit of, hey, at least it's it's on people. The, the seeds have been planted, put it that mm -hmm. way. The seeds have been planted and it's on people's minds. So that's really mm -hmm. great. Okay, so let's hear about your story of how you ended up quitting college and going to the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years, because mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about that. That's 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 kind of a bold thing to do, right? <laughs> For most college kids. <laughs> yeah, I look I, I look back and think, you know, there's a thin line sometimes between courage and stupidity. Uh, but um, uh, no, it's interesting. I think that um, I think I, you know, I grew up in a small suburban town in New Jersey, and and I think in a lot of ways I was pretty asleep as a as a kid, other than sports you know I, I you know i kind of sports got me through uh high school found myself in college and i think uh, a a number of things came together that that woke me up you know part of it was the people who were around me at, at rutgers from who were there from all over the country and all over the world i became passionate about um reading which i had not really done and and I took a course in French, German, and Italian literature in translation, which was mind-blowing, reading, reading about great writer, writers uh, through fiction. And then uh, I discovered psychology and existentialism, and I read a book that really shook me by um, a book called Tortoise Psychology of Being by Abraham Maslow, which was a study of exceptional people, people who, and he, he did a lot of research. 
It's interesting. A lot of people don't know this about Maslow. They they think of his hierarchy of needs, which was also you know groundbreaking um, psychology. But right. this was a study he did of thousands of people wanting to know why certain people seemed more at ease, more emotional, felt more deeply. And there was something about that that really grabbed my attention, especially in contrast to how I felt and how asleep I felt. And I, I feel like I need this. I need this. And, and I, uh, someone handed me a brochure about some things that were happening on the West Coast, and I decided I needed to go find out for myself. It took a one year leave of absence. Uh, for Rutgers, but then when I learned of the San Francisco Zen Center, as soon as I walked in, I think the the people and the the practice and the beauty of the place it was something just right for me and um, and th that you know I still have I still have the letter that I wrote my mother saved it the letter that I wrote to my parents explaining why I wasn't coming back to college and why this was the education that I needed. I now know as a parent how hard that letter must have been, uh, but it it turned out to be um, really life-changing. And also uh, a big surprise was the role of work and leadership that I kept getting asked to take on leadership roles at the Zen Center. Mm -hmm. and, and there was something about the, the attitudes and culture of this integration of meditation, mindfulness, Zen with work and and leadership that I, I remember thinking, why isn't everyone doing this? It just made so much sense. And that set me on my course of life. And I ended up uh, after 10 years going back and finishing my my degree at Rutgers and then going right into business school. I went to New York University uh, graduate business school and and shortly after I came out, I ended up starting my first company. I started a company that made greeting cards and calendars uh, out of recycled paper. Oh, nice. And we, and we were licensing the words of the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and others. And, and that was, um, I, I learned a lot about leadership that, and again, all of that, I think, paved the way for the work that I then uh, got to do at Google. Wow. That, that's really interesting. And I have to ask this question. So we're gonna we're gonna regress for a minute. What did you say in the letter to your parents? <laughs> I think I described that uh, how much I was learning, appreciating, enjoying being at life at the San Francisco Zen Center, that I was surrounded by um, Ivy League dropouts, really smart, good, interesting people. I mean, they did, I think it was um, before that letter, they sent out um, a friend of mine to rescue me from the cult, you know, of the Zen Center. Oh, gosh. <laughs> of course, my friend ended up becoming part of the Zen Center as well. So that didn't work out for them all that well. Um, but yeah, I think um, I described the best that I could uh, that there were some big needs and gaps that I felt in my in my own being in my own life in my in my emotional education that uh, that this Zen practice was providing that that college wasn't for me. Wow. So they eventually 
threw their hands up and were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it helped. They, they came out and, and visited and, you know, so. Um, they got to see they, that it wasn't a cult and that it, you know. Yeah. yeah. They even came at the time I was living in the Zen monastery in the mountains in California, a place called Tassajara, which happens to be extraordinarily beautiful uh, and has great food and you know hot natural hot springs and they they kind of, oh oh like they kind of got a whole different sense you know even without understanding or knowing anything about zen practice or meditation practice just the the place the vibe you know the feeling how um there was a, a sense of um you know kind there was a a feeling of kindness and the way people uh, treated each other and the mutual sense of respect that was, I think, part of Zen practice that they could feel and see. Nice. Well, that's that's really great that they were supportive because I I know my son's a senior in college and uh, and he already has a job offer uh -huh. for when he finishes. Yeah. yeah. And he he he's kind of hinted a few times. Oh, I wish I could just start working, and I'm like get the degree, just yeah. finish the degree. <laughs> well, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the story, you know, it, of, it was always hard for my father, especially, like, I think mm -hmm. he really had a different aspiration for me and it was hard, but um, is, I was still living at the Zen center when I got a call from my mother saying that my father was quite ill and was dying of cancer. Oh, and, and I went, I went back, I left, I left, you know, the Zen Center and went, flew back to New Jersey. And, and there was a way that I was able to be with my father. Um, there were, you know, at that time, there was a lot of people weren't telling him what was actually happening. And he was confused and disoriented. And I had some really great um, support system that helped me, uh, you know, take a little bit more control of the situation and work more skillfully with him and with the doctors and have some real meetings and conversations with him. And at one point he looked at me and said, you know, I don't really understand what it is you're doing at the Zen Center, but whatever it is, keep doing it. Oh, and it was, it was really a, you know, again, yeah. I, I think I wasn't aware of my own changes myself, but seeing myself through my father's eyes, I was like, oh, this is yeah. really having a, a big impact on me and allowing me to show up in a different way and allowing me to show up in in this life and death situation with my father and to meet my father yeah. in, in that way. And, you know, and in some way, you know, there are many, many ways to talk about, you know, mindfulness or leadership and, but, you know, in some way it's about cultivating the ability to really meet ourselves and to really meet other people in a much more uh, profound, full way. Yeah, because, you know, you call it Zen. For me, it's it, it's all the same thing. We, we, we're just coming at it from a different angle. It's it's your you're in alignment because your vibrational frequency is at a higher state. Mm -hmm. And and when you raise your vibrational frequency, people are going to react to you in a different way mm -hmm. because you're showing up differently. Yeah. Yeah. To me, Zen is a, you know, kind of code word for how to be a more full functioning human being. Right. And, right. And 
and that's the you know and and in the Zen and of course there's a whole rich tradition that of thousand you know of, of thousand or more years in the Zen world but you know what I like about Zen is it it doesn't care about Zen it's a, it wants to get rid of it what it really cares about is you know human beings and how you know and life and how to be more uh, uh, compassionate and connected and full functioning. Oh, love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So you have a book out that's called finding clarity. What was the, what was the driving force that you felt like I have to, I have to write this book. Yeah. You know, much of my, uh, my day job is, uh, I do coaching and consulting to all kinds of large companies, small companies, uh, but a client who has been one of my main uh, companies that I've been working with is a socially responsible bank whose mission is to to change capitalism and how, you know, the right use of money. And in working with this bank, I mentioned the term, somehow it came up around accountability and compassionate accountability. And they just completely have adopted it as the way, the kind of culture that they want to create. High accountability, you know, high alignment, uh, high, you know, um, measuring results, and at the same time, trust, care, and compassion. And out of that work, I began developing this ongoing training programs called Compassionate Accountability. And the book, the book grew out of grew out of that work. And of course, I realized that the same kinds of themes and practices also apply to all our relationships, our, our families, and any, it's, it's really about, uh, you know, effective and caring relationships in, in all aspects of our lives. Mm, I love that. Now, for those of you, for those listeners that are scratching their head, can you just elaborate a little bit more on compassionate accountability. Can yeah. you just explain sure. how that well, works? Yeah. Well, let's start with accountability, right? Well, right. what's interesting is generally people don't like accountability has this sort of negative connotation, right? Um, like hold it's like this harsh being held accountable, right. but really accountability, I, I, maybe the, the word that I like, maybe that's a, a gentler word is alignment in a way. Accountability means to be aligned with your own action, your actions and words and values are all aligned. This is a form of holding yourself accountable. And then accountability with others is around alignment. Are we, in what ways are there gaps and in what ways are we in sync with what we're trying to do with our vision of what success looks like or even in families, in how, how we are speaking to each other, what are underlying values, what's most important to us. And accountability, though, can be cold and harsh and needs the caring, trusting, compassion side. And to me, especially in workplace cultures, uh, there's something so, I think, useful about what looks like competing kinds of values or activities, but they, they, they're needed. We need this clear sense of measurement, this clarity about what, what it is we're doing, but we also need the humanity. We need the trust and the care. So this is where that, as a practice, this, you know, 
compassion and accountability, right? Workplaces that are high in compassion and low in accountability don't work very well either. They're, they might they might feel warm and fuzzy, but they're not really, they're kind of frustrating because not, not much is getting done. And workplaces that are high in accountability, also not the kind of place that people need. We need the humanity. We need to bring in the compassion piece as well. So this, I think, is the, the aha of bringing these two practices together as one practice, as compassionate accountability. And all of it underneath is about you know, cultivating more clarity, more, more self-awareness, more not being caught by our, our fight, flight, and freeze tendencies, or the negativity bias, or our, whatever our stories are. We're such storytelling creatures. Yes. So, yes. so clar clarity is the cuts through all in order to actually be a more uh, accountable and compassionate. We, we, we need to shift those stories. So that's how you're, you're suggesting you bridge the gap in an organization that is highly compassionate, but is not account holding anyone accountable mm -hmm. and vice versa. So they, yeah. so is that where you come in and yeah. say, okay, you've got to get very clear on, on what, what are yeah. they getting clear on? They're getting clear on two things, two main big buckets. One is what is it we're trying to accomplish? What does success look like? And okay. it's amazing how easy it is to, lack clarity there you know because it's a it's always changing and growing and developing like what i mean there's there's you know there's finance you know there's financials but then there's projects there's what are our um you know all of the assumptions about success but the other big bucket is how are we working together like how how are we doing with things like vulnerability and expressing how do we treat failure and and things you know and breakdowns um what are expectations about responsiveness with each other and again the so the what and the how are the key pieces that we want to have um, a lot of accountability and it's hard you know it's ongoing it's ongoing work and then there's always that that darn human piece that emotional piece that that emotional intelligence piece that comes in and and influences a lot uh, both the accountability and the compassion piece well well sure because you know there's some people that don't want to be the bad guy that you know the good cop bad cop they don't want to be the bad cop and then there's some people that don't have a compassionate bone in their body so how do you yeah. you know what do you do in that case how can you teach somebody to be compassionate if it's just not part of their fabric you know i think well first i want to the there's a, a lot of uh, interesting um, research and practices around not avoiding conflict right the importance mm -hmm. of not avoiding Right. When when um, when there are gaps, when there's conflict and there will be there will be conflict and most people, most people tend to be conflict avoidant. There are some people who are on the other side who over overreact and and um, yeah. there's some leaders who they might think they're uh, questioning someone when they actually turn into interrogating them. This is kind of overreacting right. to conflict. Right. I think that for the most part, 
compassion is baked into us as human beings. It's part of, it's, you know, it's part of our makeup. There are exceptions, but you know, yes. the person who doesn't have a compassionate bone in their body, man, that is a real, real rare, rare, rare bird. Um, and, and that's, you know, so I think what we're talking about is this much more, you know, in a bell curve, it's norm, normal people are, right. we, we all, we, you know, so yeah, there, there well, are some, some exceptions. There are, there are some, those tend to be the real toxic, you know, there are toxic people, there are toxic right. players, but more and more what I've noticed, and this is part of the shift that's happening is they're not tolerated. They're mostly not tolerated little by right. little. They're being, they're being rooted out of workplaces or they're having to change. They're having to realize that that particular toxic, non-compassionate style that's, that used to work. People like that used to get promoted and used to end up finding themselves, you know, in leadership roles. Of course, it still happens, but it's the, it's really the exception more and more these days. Yeah. And I just, I think what I was referring to more of is that you have, and, and I'm not trying to say it's a male thing or a female thing. It's just more predominant in men is that their egos get in mm -hmm. the way and that there's many men that their ego is so strong because they feel like that's that's what they need in order to get ahead and in order right. to be that leader. Yeah. Not saying they're not compassionate. It's just they don't allow that side to come into the workplace. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the I think why uh, this why mindfulness practice and meditation practice are the secret sauce. Yes, to, because they get right to the ego again, whether it's the male or the female ego. Um, yeah, and and that you know, an ego is a essentially a defense mechanism. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm often quoting a a scientist at Google who I became good friends with who who said, you know, we humans are descendants of the nervous apes. The uh, the apes that were chill and cool, they all got killed. It was the ones who were really adept at scanning for threats. And and we humans have inherited those genes. We and and this is I think you know, we're so sensitive to any time we're threatened. And we also have most of us well honed uh, inner critic, you know, that we're scanning mm -hmm. for threats internally and externally. And this is very much related, I think, to ego and why, you know, why men or why people tend to be so ego driven, because it is, um, it's a safety mechanism. It's a way to uh, bolster one's survival. We're here to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes some practice. It takes practice to yeah. notice that. And also to, again, to realize it doesn't work very well. It's not a way of building trust or connection or collaboration in the work world, which have become more and more essential to getting stuff done. Yes, no kidding. Thank you for all of that. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. This is just incredible. Your book, Finding Clarity, can be found on Amazon. Do you have a website? I do. My website is marklesser.net, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. Yep. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience before we close up that I haven't, we haven't brought up or I haven't, we haven't talked about? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'll just mention uh, the, 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 the title of the first chapter of my book is Be Curious, Not Furious. Oh. And I think everyone should have that sewn in to um, our clothing. You know, and again, this can be whether you're in traffic or on the line or someone looks at you in a certain way, just to bring, you know, to bring a sense of curiosity into, especially when we're triggered, when we're annoyed, when are, you know, when, when things feel hard, um, to be curious, not furious as a practice. I love that. Be curious, not furious. I'm writing that down. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> All right, Mark, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Folks, check out his book, Finding Clarity. Go to his website, marklesser.net, and that will be on or in the show notes as well. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. And thank you for listening today. I certainly hope that you enjoyed today's interview. Thank you so much for joining me. And as always, I hope that you and your family are healthy and safe and that your lives are filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Take care, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.